Here at Crooked Media, we love Karyuma and their comfortable, cool, sustainably made sneakers. Crooked loves them so much that we just released our second collaboration with them, a Love It or Leave It sneaker. They come in pink and black and have a really fun LA-inspired design with lots of details Love It or Leave It fans will recognize. Now is the perfect time to step up your shoe game with super comfortable sneakers crafted with consciously crafted materials. Plus, Karyuma plants two trees in the Brazilian rainforest for each pair purchased. Head to crooked.com store to grab a pair. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Last Sunday, we hosted our third annual live show from the American Public Health Association National Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Here's your show. All right, good evening, APHA. I am so excited uh, to be here with you. I'm also super excited to be welcoming our guest today, uh, Ian Bogosh. Now, we'll talk a bit more with Ian, but I want to give you some context of why it is that we're talking about public health and the internet. Now, like many of you, I've given my fair share of, of public health lectures. And usually when I give those lectures, I try to start from baseline first principles. So what is public health? And I know everybody in this audience is real quick. We're always like, well, it's not medicine, okay? It's different. Public health is what we as a society do collectively to assure the conditions for people to be healthy. Now, all of us have heard that definition. We probably heard it many, many, many times, can repeat it ad nauseum. But I want to break it down quickly because I want to explain why it is that I think we're getting the internet wrong. Public health, of course, is not about individual action. It is about collective action. It's about all of us acting in concert to do a thing. You can't do public health for individuals. Instead, what you do is you do public health for communities, for society. And then the last part is that doing public health is about what you do collectively to change the conditions in which communities live. Now, when we think about conditions, we start from the most tangible. The very air we breathe, the water we drink, the sidewalks or not that we walk on, the nature of our public transit, but then we get more esoteric. The nature of laws, whether or not you have a chance to help elect your public officials, whether or not your speech and your bodily autonomy are protected. We all understand this when it comes to what it is that we do. But I want us to think a little bit about what kinds of contexts we take seriously in public health. And that's where I think we may be failing. See, when we think about context, most of the time, we limit the context that we admit into where it is that we do public health action to tangible concepts, places. You should be able to see them and feel them and walk into them. The problem though, is that I think our definition of context may be too limited. How many of you all here remember a time before you had internet in your home? All right, as most of us, right? I remember that time. We didn't get internet in my house until we had America Online in 1996. I was 13 years old. I had never bothered learning how to type until I was trying to AI message my friends. But I remember that you would walk away from the internet. I want you to raise your hand if you could access the internet within three seconds right now. 
Here's the thing about that. When was the last time somebody told you that you should practice presence? That you should really think about how to make sure that you are present in the space, in the moment that you are in, that this would be really good for your mental health. You hear that advice before? Why is it that we have to give that advice? How many of us are not actually present in the place that we're in? Well, none of us and all of us. And that's exactly it. Is that when we think about being present in your current context, we usually think about trying to keep your mind focused on the place in which you're inhabiting. And the reason we say that is because it's so easy to inhabit what? Another place. And that's the place in your phone, on the internet. And I think the fact that we assume that the internet of today is just like the internet from 1996, that it's a place that you can choose to go to, that maybe you can interact with some of your friends that can give you certain kinds of information and that that's all that's limited to. I think that we're missing out on the opportunity to think through the broader impact of the internet of today on people's health. Because here's the thing, I'm coming to you as somebody who's about to turn 40. Hmm? And I barely remember a time before the internet. I think about my siblings, one born in 1992, the other born in 1999. For them, there was not a time before the internet. And for that reason, the ways in which the internet space has started to take in, has started to conquer, has started to color our ability to be engaged in the real space means that we fundamentally have to be asking about the public health implications of the internet. And I say this in 2023, in a time when the internet is about to undergo some really profound changes. So today, yes, we're going to talk about myths and disinformation. We're even gonna talk about the ways that the internet can enable us with real-time data. Those are all great. But I want you, for the course of this discussion, to take seriously the premise that the internet is a place like other contexts. And that if we're serious about engaging some of the biggest challenges of our time, whether it's teen mental illness or the fabric of our civil society, that we need to start thinking a bit about how it is that public health ought to act on this context we call the internet. We've got an incredible guest for us today. But first, I've got to read a couple messages from our sponsors. America Dissected is brought to you by the DeBomau Foundation. If you're in public health, understanding policy is part of the job. Sharpen your skills and expand your knowledge with strategic skills for public health practice, policy engagement, a new book from the DeBomau Foundation and APHA Press. Policy engagement demystifies the policymaking process and gives readers the tools and confidence that they need to pursue bold change. To learn more and get your copy, visit DeBomau.org or you can stop by the APHA Press booth here in Atlanta. Margaret Casey Foundation is another one of our sponsors. Margaret Casey Foundation is dedicated to creating a country where the needs of marginalized and underrepresented communities take center stage. We're thrilled to introduce the 2023 Freedom Scholars. Among them, Professor Mimi Kim. Mimi understands that the path to transformation, liberation, and abolition is demanding, but understands that it's essential for fostering lasting change. These scholars are luminaries in academia, providing invaluable insights to empower social justice leaders and igniting ideas that encourage us all to envision and transform our democracy, economy, and society. Get to know the entire cohort of 2023 Freedom Scholars and visit Marguerite Casey Foundation's website at caseygrants.org 
and connect with them on social media at Casey Grants. Let's come together to shape a brighter future. With that, I would love to introduce our guest today. Uh, Ian Bogost is somebody who's been thinking a lot about the internet as context. He's even designed part of it. Ian Bogost is a video game designer, professor, and author. He's written 10 books, including How to Talk About Video Games. His work can also be found at The Atlantic, where he's a contributing writer, and he's a professor in arts and sciences, film and media studies, and computer science at Washington University in St. Louis. Please give a warm APHA welcome to Ian Bogost. Uh, public health conferences have you ever been to? I have been to one. How are you enjoying yourself? So far, so good. So are we Are we the funnest people you've ever been around? You are the funnest people I've ever met. <laughs> Man, you got some boring friends for some <laughs> But also, like, we're a whole community founded on telling people what not to do. Yeah, it's kind of a drag. It's yeah, like a little IT. bit. A little bit. <laughs> but um, I, I, I want to, I want you to just think a little bit about the definition that I shared about public health. And You've designed digital spaces. Mm-hmm. I want you to think a little bit about how do you think about designing them? And do you think about them as real spaces? And do you think about the ways that people are going to interact with this space vis-a-vis their health? So the spaces are real. Digital spaces are, are real. But they are distinct from other kinds of spaces. We went through a couple kind of jags with ourselves on this over the years. First, we thought there was the real world and there was the online world. And when you're in the online world, there's something kind of wrong with you, you know? <laughs> um, like you're in, your, you're in your basement too much or you're dialed into Prodigy or America Online and, you, you know, mom wants to use the phone or you're gaming with your friends or whatever you're doing. But now all of us are in those spaces all, all the time, as you, as you pointed out. Uh, and so it feels as though they've taken over the world, but they are still, they're still distinct. Like those of us in this room today are in this room, uh, and those of us who can also be on the internet with one another, you can text your friends or your, you know, your parents or whatever, uh, you're, in a different, you're in a different space. So that can be very confusing. It can be very confusing, but it's really no different when you think about it. It's no different than opening a book, turning on the television. We're, we're used to moving between a me- what we call mediated experiences Uh, And the internet is that, but it's also weirder than that because you use it to do things. You use it to do your banking. You use it to go to the doctor. uh, You use it to find information, to buy stuff. And increasingly, we do a lot more things through it. So it's made it even more confusing to think of them as as separate. I think one of the places for me where the rubber hits the road when it comes to the role of the internet space is in how we think about community. And I think what's been really challenging in thinking about and watching particularly younger people interact for whom the internet has displaced traditional community spaces is that even if you wanted to opt out as a young person, I don't actually think that's possible because so much of that interaction is mediated online. Like you walk into a lecture hall before lecture and I remember being in college and I'd be sitting there, either I have a group of friends with me, we'd be talking, hanging out or... I might try and strike a conversation mm-hmm. while we're waiting for lecture. Sure. Today, everybody's literally on their phone. And like, that's the normal thing. And if you tried to strike up a conversation, people look at you kind of weird. So how is it that the social feature of the internet 
has started to, I guess, admix, almost steal from a lot of the social features in in in, in actual lived space. It's, there's a lot to say here. There's a lot lots to unpack. Uh, one one feature you're observing is that not just young people, but people of all kinds don't have other options. Where are you going to go to do things? It's, it's, it's true if you're a young person because, you know, we, we coop you up. You don't go out and, like, ride your bike or hang out with your friends. I mean, there's sort of these, these stereotypes of what that looks like, but it's also true. But it's true in part because you can do it online. Mm. You, can, you can dial up. And you're having true social experiences when you play Fortnite with your friends or what have you. It's not, it's not fake. It, it, is, it is real, but it has displaced other forms of socializing. Um, now that said, that said, the um, the idea that you could just put your phone away, like for this session, maybe you just don't need to look at your at your phone if you're in the audience, or you know that that sometimes you go out to brunch or something with a group and they oh like let's just all put our phones in the center of the table and you know let's let's be present with one another. It's it's simply not the world that we live in anymore, and we can't pretend as though we're not being drawn constantly back to those devices. There are companies worth trillions of dollars whose sole purpose is to get you to pick up the phone again that's in your pocket or purse right now or that's in the center of the table. And it's simply not realistic uh, to kind of wag our fingers at it uh, as an undesirable activity, as something that's just like a bad habit, like, like biting your fingernails. I really appreciate that point because there's there's a couple of features I want to draw out here. The first is it gets to a couple of different modes of, of public health action. And anybody who listens to the show knows that one of my big frustrations with what public health has become mm. is that we have ceded this regulatory right. engagement space and we have limited ourselves to being, at best, informers of risk with some value-laden proposition of that. And we use that value judgment oftentimes to try and coerce people about what they should and should not do without thinking about the broader structure within which they do that thing. So we tell people, you should eat well and exercise. Well, that's great advice. It is. Except for Mm. if you live in a community that was designed specifically so that you needed a car to drive in it, right? It becomes a lot harder to go out of your way to get exercise. That's right. If we don't sell healthy foods and we've corrupted our food environment, it's a lot harder to eat well. And so we're in the situation where when we talk about uh, about the health implications of phone use, of social media, the challenge is we're swimming against the tide and we've sort of not thought about or failed to appreciate the fact that in the same way, we are working against a set of corporations who've made like you said, trillions of dollars monetizing eyeballs and eardrums so that we always pick up the phone. Although, <clears throat> there's another side to it too, which is that maybe it's okay. Maybe mm-hmm. it's even good, at least some of the time, and maybe most of the time. Uh, I was thinking about this this year. I was trying to remember what people did, what I did, because I remember before phones and the internet. What did I do during all those times when I would be looking at my phone now? Like when you walk into the classroom, you're waiting for your coffee, the bus hasn't come, this session hasn't started, and you need something. What would you have done? And what I realized is I, we were really bored. It was super <laughs> boring. 
<laughs> you go to the dentist's office or something, and you'd read through the magazine from like three months ago that was on the counter. Uh, and then when it was done, or when you'd seen everything you wanted, you'd stare at the clock, or you'd read the pamphlet that they handed out to you. People would read shampoo bottles just for something to do, just for something to do. Uh, and you know, you're working a boring job and waiting for the for the shift to end. Nothing, nothing to do. And now you can get uh, information. Sure, you can get misinformation, but you can connect with people. You can talk to your spouse or your friends or your or your parents. Um, you can read. People read more than they ever have before. So the activities that we're partaking of when we use those devices aren't just kind of compulsive. It's not just, oh, I'm, I'm taking part in this compulsion. That's what I'm doing. It is that. Don't get me wrong. But it's, it's more than that, mm. too. So I think, you know, it, I think the analogy that I, I want to go back to then is food. All of us need to eat food. The challenge becomes... What happens when our need to eat food is weaponized around creating foods that are artificially minimally expensive, that are not as nutrient-rich as they ought to be, and that are designed specifically to compel us to eat them, right? Mm. And that's the, the aspect of, I think, nutrition that public health would 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 look upon and say, that's a real problem. And I guess the, the question I want to ask you is, we have an internet, right? An internet 2.0, we'll say, right? Internet 1.0 was AOL, you know, me 13 years old in 96. 2.0 was me in 2007 on Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. And we're about to get to 3.0, which is this AI media, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But part of the problem here seems to be the internet unto itself is not a problem. You're right. Like, it allows us to do all kinds of great things. I don't think any of us you know, would want to go back to a world where if you wanted a piece of information, you literally had to go to a library. Libraries are amazing places, by the way. But where you'd have to go to a library, talk to a librarian, find an actual physical journal, sit there and read the thing, maybe photocopy it, right? We don't want to go back to that world. The problem, though, is that it's a series of incentives. I'd love to hear a bit about, you know, thinking about path dependency, given that we're about to be at another inflection point. What are the set of choices that led to the internet that we have that tends to be compulsive, that tends to, um, you know, pull us. It's not yep. just I'm hanging out, like waiting for a doctor. It's I'm with the person I I love the most in my life, and we're having a lovely dinner, and I want to check my phone because because my fingers are getting right? That, right. That's the issue. Yeah, and uh, this is a long history. So let me see if I can go through it rapidly. Um, it's a history of of trying to solve a problem of access and trying to solve a problem of scale and of facing the consequences of those, uh, of those solutions. Uh, so back way before the internet, uh, in the Cold War, uh, there was a dream of making, infra- kind of a, an officialist dream, a guy named Vannevar Bush, who uh, was partly responsible for the Manhattan Project, wanted to make scientific information more accessible, or at least loved the idea of making it more so accessible. So he hated the library, too. That's uh, he, he came up with this, <laughs> this concept of a, a physical desk that would, that would have a bunch of um, microfilms <laughs> in it, uh, and you could access all that information at your fingertips and make connections between them, uh, and you could see what other people had made connections. And this is 1945 when this vision was articulated in a, in a piece for The Atlantic, actually, called As We May Think. Uh, and this had enormous influence on people that came later. Um, on, the, on the invention of the idea of hypertext, which then influenced the development of the World Wide Web, but also on the personal computer. So 
what one of the things that we have with the prehistory of the internet is a desire to make information more accessible and then a desire to make machines for accessing and managing information, aka computers, more accessible. Um, in the early days of, of the personal computer, in the 1970s when this idea was new, computers were the things of government agencies, of large corporations, and uh, the folks who invented uh, the PCs, uh, you know, the Apple One, uh, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, and uh, 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 even the folks who made early video game systems at Atari, they saw themselves as part of the counterculture movement. Mm. They, were, they were taking control of, of this machinery of the future and putting it in the hands of the people. So that's about access, right? And then it's about scaling up that access by turning it into commercial products. And that, those were the PCs that we got in the 70s and 80s. And then connecting them together um, via a system of publishing information that came out of the sciences again. That's where the World Wide Web originated as a, a tool for scientists to share information and researchers. Um, that then became commercialized uh, in, the, in the, the Web 1 days or the, the Internet 1.0, if you want to call it that. And uh, what if everything, the question then was, what if everything that you do now, you could do through a computer and you were connected to your bank and your electric company and you could look up the menu of the restaurant down the street to see if it was appealing to you? Uh, so again, you know, it's this, it's this theme of, of access and then scaling up that access to more and more people. Then suddenly you could publish. You or me or anyone could have a web page or later a blog and you could say whatever you wanted. Uh, you could publish video or audio on the internet, and you, in, at least in principle, were uh, taking away the middlemen. You now had direct access to the whole world, or at least the whole world uh, that was online. And all of that was uh, was liberating in many ways, and and it gave us access to one another and to information. When things really started to shift, it was when that practice became a kind of practice like unto itself. You know what I mean? Um, a computer was typically used to get work done. You know, you were using it to do word processing or something, and then you were publishing that information. Even, even the early internet was about getting things done. I'm now doing, I'm paying my cable bill online. Uh, you were getting something done. But that social media era and then the smartphone era that followed on its heels was about using computation just for whatever, whatever it was, what, just for the activity of using it, mm. right? And that's when you started going on social media. That's when you started just, you know, kind of using the phone to scroll through things or even just to play games to kind of like touch the apparatus to feel what it was like to manipulate it. Uh, so that shift from using these machines and the networks on which they were built to get things done, including to connect with one another, which is what the early days of social networking were all about. You and I could keep in touch even if we didn't live together in the same town, even if we didn't call each other on the phone every week, to... Well, now we just, everyone's a publisher and we want them to speak as much as possible to as many people as possible. That's the shift from social networks mm. to social media. That's when everything changed. And that's when it, it, it became a, a game of um, maximizing content, as we now call it, engagement, monetizing uh, that engagement, uh, and turning it into uh, not just a kind of platform for speech uh, or for activities, uh, but for attention um, and as a kind of way of as a kind of way way of life. Yeah. So that's the area to really focus on. Um, if you wanted to find remedies akin to those that you might analogize in food in the in the food chain, it's there. It's the quantity of information. It's the speed at which 
it can be delivered. It's the, uh, uh, the number of people that can see it all, all at once. Um, and you put all those things together and it's just no wonder that it's explosive uh, yeah. in a bad way. So, you know, it's funny because the analogy for explosive content on the internet is to a virus. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody wants to, quote, go viral. I kind of always want to remind folks, like, viral, going viral is not a good thing, right? In public health, essentially a bad thing to go viral. Oh, it's, it's I mean, Douglas Rushkoff, who's the guy who came up with, with that idea back in the, in the 90s, I believe, he called it an idea of virus. And it was absolutely, in his words, articulated as a bad thing because viruses are bad. It got completely contorted. Mm. Yeah. I, I want to think a little bit, though, about the ways that specifically a couple of very, very big corporations cemented in place mm-hmm. this kind of marketplace. And I think one of the challenges that I've had, particularly as we think about public health and our engage with the internet, is that so much, when, when you ask folks about the impact of the internet on public health, they'll usually say one of two things. One good thing, which is, wow, we have so much information at our fingertips. We can collect such great data. And I, and I think those things are true. And I want to ask a little bit more about that, particularly as it comes to AI. But the second is it has become an engine for the proliferation of mis- and disinformation. And I guess the, the point that you're making here, and I want us all to think a bit about this, is it did not have to be that way. But it became that way as a function of the kind of marketplace that was built and cemented into place by a couple of very, very large actors. And I think we missed the opportunity to be thinking about all of the externalities of that kind of action of like tech as a potential public health bad that I think we missed. And I want to think a little bit about that with you. No, we completely missed it. it. The intervention had to happen sometime between 2004 and 2008 or so. Um, And in the intervening years, you got social media in all terms, uh, YouTube, Facebook, um, and, um, you know, Twitter, eventually Instagram, which came. Actually, Instagram, I think, is really the moment when it cements itself. I'll get back to that. Uh, And then the smartphone was further, et cetera. So so that was the moment for some kind of regulatory intervention, if that's what you're referring to. But yeah, we, we, uh, that that, that time came and and, and went. Um, And, you know, the Obama administration uh, was kind of a big booster of, of tech, actually, uh, during that time. So it's, uh, it's not as though uh, the, uh, you know, the opportunity for regulatory intervention, which you might associate uh, with that sort of administration being in power, that wasn't enough either. We just completely missed it. Mm. So thinking now, right, I, I want to um, ask you, and this is, this is, you know, to all of our public health talkers in the audience, one of the things that happened during the actual viral moment where like a, an actual virus went viral uh, is that we had come to the internet assuming that the old rules of conversation would hold. Specifically, that being an authority or an arbiter <laughs> of the science would command a platform large enough to be able to drown out, right, or otherwise communicate past a lot of the mis- and disinformation. And what we found was that because of the algorithms that had been built in that 2004, 2008 period and continued to hone later on, is that actually it was the conflict itself that drove engagement and that created an even platform between truth and like full-on falsehood, which of course elevated falsehood. And I guess I, I want to ask you, as we think about you know, how we engage in this, this internet 2.0 moment and going into 3.0, how should we be thinking about 
the, the way in which this moment of the internet actually privileges certain kinds of speech versus others and how do you communicate in it? <laughs> did y'all really think that though? That it was- We were, did, wow. we did. Yeah. Okay. Am I wrong? No, we really thought that, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, we did. I mean, we're, like, we're like an earnest bunch, right? Like we, we assume that like good always wins and like, no, unfortunately it's not the world we live in. I mean, the, the, yeah, it's, 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 there's so much to say about it. The, um, we know, we know that antagonism, oppositionalism, uh, bad vibes, uh, that they reach further and faster than, than good ones. And we kind of knew that already from television and from other forms of media, but it only got amplified uh, in, in the internet uh, age. Um, so, you know, in terms of like, how we, since we can't go back and recuperate that moment, we have to face the reality in which we actually live and work from that point uh, forward. Uh, I don't know what I would have done differently as a public health communicator had I been one during the early days of the pandemic. But what was clearly crucial was to understand, okay, the channel is going to have an effect on the message. And, and surely, didn't we learn that from like Kennedy and Nixon? You know, like why, why did we have to learn that lesson now? Uh, it, it's a very simple one. And it's that technologies change the messages that are delivered on them. And so when you say one thing one week and you say another thing the other week, but now they've been compressed into little sound bites that are even smaller than the sound bites you can get on network television, uh, it is no wonder that that creates a space for that kind of argument that you're talking about, that kind of dispute uh, to undermine the trust of a supposedly trustworthy actor and then to spread that mistrust further, uh, whether for earnest uh, or, or deceitful ends. We, we knew that was the case already by 2020. It was known. Hmm. Um, we didn't get the memo. Well, and, and, you know, it's easy for me to say now sitting here today, and maybe nothing else could have happened. Maybe, maybe this is a comforting thought to think. Hmm. Maybe at that moment in time, there was nothing we could have done better. The battle had already been lost. We got through it as best we could in that moment, which doesn't mean that we did a good job, that you did a good job. But now we have to move forward in some way. Now, if I had to pick one thing to change, it's not an easy thing to change. One thing to change, it would be to turn down the volume, uh, to, to downscale where everything had been upscaled. People just aren't meant to be able to speak this frequently to this many people. It is bad. And no matter what they're saying, even if they're delivering expert public health information, in fact, I don't think you should be able to do that as often as you want. It has to become more precious. Mm. You know, it's interesting because there's an implicit competition between two pieces of what we shared. On the one hand, the whole advent of the internet, you, know, you talked about the Vannevar Bush um, idealized moment. The whole point here was that if we could connect faster to more people, that that should be a benefit for people. And we've gotten to a point now where the cost of communication is virtually nothing. Any of us can, in theory, communicate to everyone all the time. Yep. And we have not yielded the world that we want. In fact, I, I worry that because of that, and because you're right, that our minds aren't great at processing information coming to us from everywhere all the time and understanding how to leverage that in a productive way, that we've created a world that inhabiting is actually really quite hard particularly so for people who engage it the most. And I would argue that a lot of the 
teen mental health challenges that we face are a function of this you know, weird information environment that we now occupy as a function of the internet. I guess my, my question to you is, as we think about what ought to be regulated or should have been regulated, mm. what are the pieces that we should have pushed for? And I'm, I'm asking this because we're about to hit another inflection and I swear we'll move on to AI, I keep saying it. But we're about to hit another inflection in which our information is not the only information yeah. that's being created. Yeah. I mean, the, the the point I would make about uh, regulatory opportunity, this is, that is to say what is possible and what is desirable. What's at the intersection of what is currently possible and what is, and what is desirable? There's a lot of talk about content-related, whether it's regulation <clears throat> or management. So, you know, moderation. How do we get all this misinformation uh, offline? Or how do we, how do we suppress it uh, from being spread if it's false? And, and that's also coming up with, with AI, AI is sort of already self-censoring. A lot of the stuff that I mess around with when I when I try out these AI systems, I'm now not allowed to do because someone has intervened, right? That's totally wrong-headed thinking. I mean, some amount of it mm. is going to be needed, but to think that, okay, we can continue just barraging the universe with information as much as we want all the time, and we will somehow figure out a way, a viable way of taking the false stuff, and here, you know, false is unfortunately relative, or maybe fortunately so, because we do have many perspectives to, to, to take on different positions, um, that we will somehow be able to control the quality of information. It's just a pipe dream. It's impossible. So what can you control instead? Well, you can control the flow. Hmm. You can control uh, how much I can say how often to how many people. Um, these are simple ideas, uh, but they've really never been tried. They're also content agnostic. It doesn't matter what I'm talking about if I can only say it every so often, right? So those are the, those are the levers I would pull on uh, if I had my druthers uh, today. But it also, um, it's, it's kind of too late in the sense, not in the sense that like, you know, power and wealth of tech companies have overrun us or that our, our tolerance for any kind of regulatory or legislative intervention is, is low. It's also that all of us have become acclimated to this way of living. Like, do you mm. want to be told, well, you know, maybe, maybe you've got your tweet for the day, actually. You're, you're kind of cut off. Oh, that'd be great. Right? Um, I, I, really, <laughs> I really need it. But, uh, but most people, they, they would feel censored, right, in a way. And that's probably what, how, they would, how they would describe it. Why are you censoring me? Or why is it that I can't do this thing that I was able to do a week ago. It's a Pandora's box problem. You know, we're trying to stuff something back in. Um, and, but it's, I still think it's the most promising hmm. uh, uh, way forward. Just turn down the volume on everyone. And if there were less stuff to see, uh, then we'd have less information by def less misinformation by definition because we'd have less, mis less information too. One more question on this. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a father. I got a six-year-old and a, and a almost one-year-old. And, I think about the ways my kids think about the internet. They have an incomplete picture of what this thing is. Yeah, definitely. And I remember my daughter one time asking me, she's like, hey, can you post my picture on Instagram? I was like, absolutely not. How do you know what Instagram is? And, uh, and she's like, oh, my friend, right? My friend has an Instagram. I was like, your friends are six? Like, how do you have, how, yeah. does, how does your friend have an Instagram? So I think a lot about how do we think about um, age and particularly using age as a proxy for cognitive development and access to this thing that even our adult minds aren't built to fully engage with. Do you think that there ought to be a, a clearer, more 
direct effort uh, to limit internet access. Some, you know, in Utah, for example, um, there was, uh, frankly, efforts to ban access to social media for, for, for kids. Yeah. And that's one extreme, right? And there are, there are other approaches to thinking about this. And of course, every approach to this regulation is going to have some unintended consequence. How do you think about the best way to engage it? Because I'll be honest with you, I look at young people, young people these days. Anyway, I look at, I think about younger folks in my life and it's hard to feel like things are not okay. And so much of it comes from this difficulty of trying to balance a life in real life, a life in digital life and have your social interactions scored and cued and monetized by some company whose goal it is to keep you there. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that internet life has done, especially post-mobile devices, is it kind of flattened all of our experiences. Like, like everyone has a phone, and so therefore everyone can kind of do the same things that everyone else can do. Mm. And if you're a kid, then maybe you don't have a phone. You probably have an iPad, though. Is your six-year-old have an iPad? No. Okay. I'm, I'm a, if you haven't gotten the sense, like I'm a, on this internet thing, man, a, a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of parents wouldn't give their kids a phone, but would give them an iPad because then they can sort of like go watch TV. You know, it's it's yeah. kind of the age-old problem of what are you going to do with your with your kids all the time. Um, but anyway, that that flattening of experience now means that we all sort of see the same stuff. We all have access to the same ideals, whereas that that you previously wouldn't have. You'd have you would have had to have been in certain kinds of adolescent or adult spaces in which different kinds of topics and opportunities would have come up, whether that's being at school or at work or you know, at the mall or whatever. These things were embedded uh, in social and, 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 and physical structures more than they are now. Now they're, they're mostly symbolic. Yeah. And once they became symbolic, it becomes harder to say, well, you, know, you shouldn't have access to this system of, of meaning that everyone else does and that they draw a value uh, and delight uh, from. So it's more of an uphill battle than it used to be. But also, we seem to be against uh, uh, limiting control of anything to anyone uh, nowadays. Uh, I mean, I, I'm familiar with the the the, the social media uh, kind of legis proposed legislation in Utah you mentioned, but there's also been uh, recent discourse about uh, uh, control of pornography online. And it's been interesting to me that there's been a lot of pushback that, that uh, to any kind of limits or controls on accessing pornographic material online. Like what would have previously in a different era seemed like fairly reasonable laws about access, um, you know, modulo certain details and the, their legislative and kind of meta-legislative purposes as, as, as politicking rather than the politics. But there's been a real kind of counter-reaction uh, 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 to that. Mm. So it's, I, I think we, we may have left orbit on the opportunity uh, to control children's experiences, or, or it's much harder to do uh, than, it, than, it, than it used to be. COPA, the, the children's privacy regulation from the 90s, that is the, you know, when you have to like check the box that you're 13, obviously did nothing, is what do you do? You check the box. Yeah. So one problem is that we, we failed at making good laws, but the gates were already, um, they were already broken but when we when we put them mm. when we put them up, you know, if if you if you're a kid, if your if your six year old went and tried to buy a pack of cigarettes, like what are you doing, right? Like no, um, but yeah, they can get on Instagram uh, much more easily. Yeah, I I wonder if enough of us who are internet native, as we 
age and our children age, that we may have a different approach to this. And I, I want to move into the conversation about AI. We hosted a great conversation with Dr. Eric Topol. And for folks who haven't listened to it, I, I highly recommend it. And the interesting thing was um, Dr. Topol is considerably older, older than I am. And he is a huge uh, believer in what AI is going to do for health and healthcare. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't noticed already, I'm a bit of a skeptic, right? Because I kind of came up in this world and I cannot argue that on net, right, we are better off than we were when a lot of these tools weren't there. So I want to I jump into the conversation about AI. First, how do you see AI changing the internet as we know it? And then I want to talk a little bit about the positives because I know there are some, but also what some of the consequences of uh, artificially generated information in this space are going to be. Okay, so let's let's try to define AI a little bit for 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 the sake of our own sanity, because you, sometimes you hear AI, it can mean it can mean sort of anything. Uh, in general, what I would say is what we mean by artificial intelligence today is using large scale information to make predictions. It's basically about probability. So, given enough data on a certain topic, uh, even if you don't know the answer, you can put it into a machine learning system uh, and it can say, well, based on what we've seen in the past, uh, these are sort of the likely next outcomes uh, given a certain set of inputs. It's oversimplifying things, but that's sort of what it looks like. So for that to work at all, you must start with a large volume of data. Sometimes that data has been collected in, I don't know, uh, by means that are normal means to collect information. So like health data is an example of a kind of information that we, we can and do collect um, in, uh, uh, through, through, through instrumentation, uh, through experimentation, through, uh, you, you know, if you have like a, a, a medical practice, then there's information, you know, they have to keep it private, all that sort of thing. But there are ways of, of collecting and sharing uh, that information when it's drawn directly from the sources from which it emanates. You run a set of experiments, what have you. When it comes to other kinds of information, like what's the likely next word in the sentence that I'm writing going to be, you need a much weirder data set and a much larger one to do it. And so everything about the scale of the internet that we've been talking about up until now, all of that information, everything online, everything on Wikipedia and Reddit, everything that you've posted to any publicly or even in some cases not publicly available resources, all of that has by now been slurped up into these language models and other sorts of, uh, of models for generating novel information as a base, as a case base from which new predictions can be made. This is important because this whole AI era that's about to open would not have been possible without the, the, the age of the OG, social media. OG 2.0. That's, that's right. We just wouldn't have enough data uh, to do it. And so on that first piece, when you think about tailored models built around uh, prediction from data, you can imagine a world where that's going to make public health research a lot better, right? Now, I'm an epidemiologist and as a, by training, and I, when I think about how we engage with our modeling, we're so limited by data we can identify. Sure. And I wrote a whole dissertation about using uh, predictive modeling to be able to run trials in a fake space, an internet you, you created, right? Or a, 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 a confined space you created. Now, with the computing capacity that we have today, you can imagine doing that on a much more targeted scale. And that seems to me to be 
somewhat positive, but then there are risks. I want you to think a little bit about when we think about the, the degree to which we are able to use data or infer and make big public policy decisions from data, how do you think yeah. we ought to be thinking? Because we missed the boat, right? Right. When we talked about regulation before. The hope is we don't miss the boat again. Where do you feel like we ought to so go here? This is going to be very confusing, I think, for folks who work in and around medicine in particular. Because with what I'll call medical data, forgive me if that's not the right way to put it. Um, public health data. Public health data, clinical data, research data, whatever it is y'all do. Right. Uh, <laughs> when, you have that, term. when you have that kind of information, uh, it may be... Um, it may be more reliable to be able to make predictions based on it, whether it's, whether it's used to generate new kinds of information, new kinds of treatments, new kinds of pharmaceuticals, new kinds of, of therapies, whatever it might be. I really do believe that in medicine we'll see enormous, and we're already seeing enormous advances that are driven uh, by, by uh, AI as a, as, a, as a partner in, in the research process. Mm. So if you hold that in one hand and then in the other you say, oh, but also all of the communication, all the information, all the other stuff that we do that's not, that's not purely clinical uh, or that's not related to interventions from that pile of data that I didn't have a name for, that's all up for grabs in a much worse way. Mm. So it's like, it's like kind of the worst of both worlds where you can trick yourself into thinking the AI stuff is good. It's going to really improve outcomes. Uh, but then, oh, hold up. It's, we're going to shovel that you know, back through this door out into the internet uh, where it can be you know, uh, I could probably generate uh, smart-sounding, accurate-sounding, not accurate-sounding, but professional-sounding public health commentary, like right now on my phone if I had it with me. I bet I could do it. And someone, maybe even someone in this room, wouldn't be able to tell the difference on first blush if it came from someone who knew what they were talking about or someone who was just asking for something plausible. Yeah. So that's where things really start to mm. go awry. How are we going to hold those two ideas in our heads at the same time? So it's like at baseline, the overhead need for expertise goes away, except for when it really comes down to policymaking, it actually makes expertise so much more important because the cost of generating seemingly plausible sounding information is, 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 is almost zero. It's basically nil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, and you could, if, if you have not tried these systems, you know, chat GPT and so on, you need to try them. There, there's free versions of most of them, and they're not that expensive uh, to subscribe to, even if it's just for a little while. I, I really encourage everyone alive online today to whatever it is that you do, try it out in these systems and see. It's 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 pretty good. It's pretty good at generating something where you think, huh, yeah, that that sounds like someone who knows what they're talking about. Until it tells a bafflingly obvious lie. <laughs> Sometimes, though, it's hard to even see the lies yeah. because you're like, wait, hold, I really need to think. I need to, like, hold my head to see the lie in this. I really have to, like, find it and look for it. And I think we also knew that that was going to happen, didn't we, with, 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 with health information, with other information? Like, think about people Googling, oh, like, something's weird about my body. I'm going to put it in Google, and then, like, WebMD comes up or something, and then you're like, I don't know, like, I have cancer. Yeah. Um, Right, and everyone, everyone on the planet has had this experience now. So we knew it was already happening, but now it's going to happen in a much worse way. It's almost like you know we're going to have Thanksgiving soon. You go to your, your there's, there's always that like overly smart uncle, like someone who knows much less than they purport to, but can pull it off. You'd be like, oh wow, like I didn't know that. But it's like no, they're just making it up. That's kind of what AI is like. Yeah, it's like that that uncle. I, and so th the notion that more and more of the internet is going to be populated by your obnoxiously confident uncle. Yeah. 
it's not a bad shorthand for it. That's that's kind of what it. That's kind of what, what we're seeing. So thinking through that, um, how should we like you know <laughs> getting to where where we see this going? The worry that I, that I have right is a a a a bad actor, a miss or a disinformer, specifically a disinformer, who really wants to disinform at scale. These tools are profoundly good. Do so you see why I want to upend the scale, right? I just don't see any other answer. The tools are out there. I mean, it's over. Uh, and they're only getting better, and they're getting better much faster than you think. And it costs enormous amounts of money to make your own models. So there are some open source models that kind of anyone can train and use that are starting to pop up. That's why I think that, that solving the scale problem is the only way. So really the answer from your mind is, we have to just limit the exposure. That's the idea it. that somehow mm-hmm. we're going to stop the content from being created. That's yeah, not going to happen. Or that we're going to limit people from getting to the content. Those two are limited. Are, 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 they're, they're, very they're, they're too difficult yeah. to pull off. That the answer here has to really just be about recognizing that there's going to be disinformation, but any one unit of disinformation in effect has to be throttled. Yeah, the, 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 the lesser the exposure of any single unit of, of, of disinformation, the better, right? And, but this is going to take a long time. Like we, it took us kind of a, a half a generation to get where we are mm. with internet information. And I don't see any reason to believe it would take any less time to, to downscale again. Here's my worry, <clears throat> is that we, we do that. Let's say, let's say that, that regime falls into place. I, I worry that you know, in a world where you know that any given time you can be exposed to mis and disinformation that's artificially generated, that it really shakes the underpinnings of trust. Because here's the thing about it, right? We are in a competitive uh, information environment. And I think that's what we missed during COVID. We did not realize that it wasn't just us unilaterally talking to the world and saying, here's the information you need to know, is that we were in a competitive media environment. And whether it was our tactics or our strategy or just the approach to competing, we had to make information that was compelling, true, and trustworthy, is that doing that in this world where, A, by definition, you're limiting the reach of of even the truth, or you're in this position where some regulator has to decide what truth gets the reach, is that it makes communicating truth in this post-AI world even harder. I I, I wonder how you think about that. We we now live in a world of multiple fictional worlds. This mm. is the best I can offer you. It, it's almost like being in an alternate timeline or like, like a fictional universe uh, where other things are not just true, but really deeply backstoried. You yeah. can, cons- it's, it's like all these like kind of weird fandoms. It's like competing of, narratives. Uh, right, like competing narratives of everything that, that trace back to lore, which is what the internet loves, you know. Uh, a kind of backstory um, that can be litigated through argument. Hmm. So that is the state of affairs. I don't have an answer for what to do with it, but if we start by diagnosing that that is the state of affairs and like lamenting this truth-falsehood business, I mean, we just have to get over it. It's like ev- everyone it lives in uh, among these, these kind of intersecting fictions. And what is it going to feel like to communicate, to try to find common ground about important matters when all of us have, you know, maybe our own little bespoke bubble mm. of, of, of different narratives that have been created especially for us or maybe not especially for us that now we, we believe. Yeah. I mean, that is a, 
a, a really sad and uh, disheartening <laughs> space within which to, to sort of transition the conversation. But I do want to take that note seriously, which is to say, if we live in a world that is increasingly going to be about a set of competing narratives, then we have to make the narrative that is backed by some sort of objective evidence that much more compelling. And, and that's the world that I, that's the thing I worry a bit about is that we want to live in a world as public health communicators and professionals where the evidence speaks for itself. And the evidence is never going, it never did speak for itself. We always had to speak for it. And increasingly now, the evidence is going to need a lot of champions. And the hard part about this is that the information environment, the context, if you will, in which we are going to be communicating about really important information that, that can leverage can be leveraged to literally save people's lives, that that's becoming harder and harder to communicate into and easier and easier to manipulate by potentially bad actors. And, and, and this is the thing about it because I think for a lot of us, and this is the thing that makes it even more scary to me, is that for a lot of us, we will be the generation that remembers the before AI, just like we are the generation that remembers the before social media yeah. and the, the, the generation that remembers the before internet. And I worry that if we do not take seriously this competing narrative environment, that we will assume that holding up the data is going to be enough. And I worry that we are going to miss our opportunity to, to really intervene. The other part of this is we've got to be invested in the regulatory framework about how information gets moved. And I think you're right, right, that, that, that it's really tough to police content, right? Nor is it, is it, frankly, even possible in a world where you can generate as much content as you want for free. But we've got to be involved in this conversation. And I think we may be missing the boat because we still operate in a world where the internet is something you can toggle out of, you can opt out of, instead of a world that you are fundamentally, by definition, opted into. And the choice that we make is how we opt into it. I would love to take a couple questions if folks have them. Um, and so we've got... Uh, two mics on either end. If folks do have questions uh, to Ian or I, we would love to take them. I can't take hands, but I can take in, uh, questions from the mic. All right. My question is around responsible AI and particularly how we achieve some level of equity and balance when we know that data is often subject to the people who have the power and the sort of levers and generations and thinking about these new systems, how are you thinking about responsibility for equity and bias? Mm -hmm. So I hate this word responsible AI or ethical AI because I think what it is is it's a way to say, I want to have the AI part and I just kind of want to magic away the, the, the problems. Like, mm. what, well, our, our AI is responsible, right? So it's okay. It's okay now. And you know the the, the point that uh, the data that's collected, where it's collected from, who benefits from its collection, but also who is represented and how all of these are extremely real problems. Um, but also all of that data has already been it's already been slurped up. It's already in use. We don't even know uh, what much of it is and how it works. Most of these systems are uh, are opaque. Uh, and difficult. That's another uh, another concept that comes up sometimes. Explainable AI, where you can ask questions about how it's drawing conclusions and and what it's doing. So we're in for a world of hurt uh, on this front. We should expect it to get worse uh, before it gets better. But I just kind of encourage you when you hear those phrases start to come. It's not that they're entirely bad, but what do they mean to the people who are articulating them? 
right? I always kind of feel like my wallet's getting stolen. Yeah. I hear this idea. Yeah. You're like, uh. And, and this is, to, to your point, this is the thing about it is that I worry that a lot of the mistakes that we made around failing governance for Internet 2.0 was being trusting of the people who were building that Internet. Yep. And I worry that we are too willing, because, because it's hard to understand what's happening, too willing to trust the people building 3.0. And the incentives that they have are entirely around market dominance of a sector that's going to be huge. And so the, the corners that they're willing to cut to win that race, I think are really important. And I also worry that, you know, it's like AI is, is if anything, it's really honest. Like humans are not very honest, but AI is honest. It's an honest arbiter of what it has slurped up. And it, what it has slurped up is all the biased garbage that we've generated on the internet. And so when AI, right, generates biased stuff, it's just reflecting back our own biases. And I, I, you know, I worry about seeding decision-making because you know, one of the nice things about being human is that you can try and correct bias. I don't know that the machines are going to be as good at it. The other last part I, I, I think we, we ought to be really thinking about is it's going to be really easy, at, particularly at the individual level uh, or the local level, to see decision-making to AI because it's going to be so much better at pattern recognition. Let me use a medical example here. A chest X-ray will give a, a physician a certain amount of information, but there is no physician in the world that has seen every chest X-ray ever done. AI can train on that. So it's going to be better at seeing patterns that we can't see. And we are going to oftentimes see decision-making, whether we say we do or we don't, however, even the system is designed to that AI because we're not going to second-guess the AI. And I think we need to build a lot better governance around how AI-based decisions are made that empower us to make decisions that are not just um, predictive, right? But that are normative about the world that we actually want to build. And this is the thing I'm really worried about. I think like I've seen, you know, so, so often when humans interact with machines, it's too easy to just like, well, the machine said, right? How often do you see that? Um, versus saying, well, actually, what, what do we want here? Um, and how much of this problem can the AI actually solve? Um, next question. One of my biggest concerns is the next generation's lack of information on certain topics due to some of the regulations going on in the States. So we have children growing up and in schools now that may never be taught in a classroom about African-American history or sexual health and things of that nature. Are you at all hopeful that this proliferation of information could help with that? And lastly, go blue. Go blue. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely helped. It's definitely helped. Like, that, that, that's one of the benefits of having uh, a, a global information uh, system, such that even if you don't see it uh, in, uh, in in school or through you know from your parents or whatever whatever it is through official channels, uh, that there you're more likely to have access to get information um, from others. But you're also likely to have access to get all the other mm. information as well. So uh, I mean th this this is a concern that is um, in some ways like separate from the matter of internet life. That is to say, like the, the, the regulatory boot that's coming down on what gets taught in schools or what, you know, what's appropriate even in college classrooms. Uh, but it's related insofar as one of the reasons it's 
it, that 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 uh, one of the reasons there's an incentive to drive that kind of uh, of legislation forward politically is because we've polarized so much more thanks to all the misinformation that internet life has generated. You know, it's interesting if you use a needle in haystack, it's easier to find the needle. It's just a much, much bigger haystack. There are more needles and way more haystacks or way, way more hay in the haystack. Yeah. And th this is the challenge that I, I have. Like well, when I watch TikTok or Instagram Reels, which is like TikTok for millennials, um, <laughs> like two weeks old, uh, is that the degree to which a random young person with a camera and the internet can find some factual information is like really profound. Like I, I couldn't imagine having that much information at my fingertips when I was young and I, I grew up in the era of the internet, right? It just wasn't as well sorted or as much. And at the, on the other side, the, the degree to which the, the information has become like a cacophony of just narrative competition, mm -hmm. which is even worse. It's like, is, you know, we think on the internet when we're like, when you, when, you, when you drop a tweet or whatever it is, you think you're communicating to the world. You're not. You're communicating to a group of people, right, that is tailored to be interested in and what it is, it is that you've communicated. Now, sure, can other people find it? Fine. But like what you tend to have is people who agree with you and people who profoundly don't. Right, and then everyone else is in a whole bunch of different echo chambers that like are talking about like Michigan football, right? Yeah, but also the affirmation that what whatever it was you had to say was was worthwhile. It was worth saying, and it was right that you said it. Right, right, and that that I think creates a weird set of incentives about around communication. Uh, next question. Hi, this has been really interesting for me to listen in on. I'm um, with an organization where a nonprofit social enterprise that builds uh, technology tools for public health. Um, we have a very large repository of information that uh, we've created over the last like five years, as well as hundreds of public health data sets. So one thing we are thinking about is what's next for us and do we want to get into the AI space? So as you guys were discussing um, and kind of lifting up the turn down the volume, um, how do we be arbiters? I'm wondering, you know, what what you would advise an organization like ours that is you know, actively building that kind of repository and looking for what's next. Yeah, it's like the the, the local farming version of, of information, if we go back to the food chain uh, metaphor. So when it's cheap and easy to just, you know, pump corn sweeteners into things or soy or whatever it is, um, and it's efficient and, and low cost, then you get it kind of, you, you reap the, what you sow, literally. Um, and I think there's there's a great, huge, enormous, important market for this kind of like you know small scale bespoke uh, info systems where where we we know where the data is coming from. It's curated. It, it, it's prov its provenance can be demonstrated and traced. Um, the, the question that no one has really answered yet is how well does it work independently from other chunks of of information? Because one of the one of the powerful features about um, these new generative artificial intelligence systems is that they're able to draw conclusions in a way that we don't even really know how or why they're, they're drawing those conclusions. Um, and so the relationship between the, the big tech wholesale systems and these local ones are now, these are now right now being litigated. And you've seen perhaps in the last week, like OpenAI announced some new products that lets you build your own. You can dump your data into it if you 
so choose and they have certain caveats about what they are and are doing with it and then others um, are building local uh, um, models are called models you know that, that take data and then and then allow you to ask questions of it or make predictions of them and that's happening in a lot of organizations too so this this whole space is now just sorting out I absolutely think it's worth experimenting in very carefully uh, experimenting and understanding the risks understanding what's happening to the information uh, in particular I, I agree with Ian entirely I agree with you that turning down the volume will have an important effect. I also think identifying the ability to identify mis and disinformation in public health is worth doing. I think it's going to be increasingly hard to do with the proliferation of new data, but I do think it's an interesting question about trying to identify. The other question is also like what public health training data are we training data are we training the yeah. future of AI on? And I think being able to build and generate that that training set for example, could be really powerful. But like, it's a whole brand new world. And I, I, you know, at some point, like 20 years on, we're going to be sitting down and like, so public health 3.0, how do we miss the boat there? But like, I'm glad, I'm glad smart people are, uh, are thinking about it. So thank you for what you do. I think we have time for two more questions, one here and one here. Go ahead. First, hi, Dr. Abdul. It's good to see you again. So I feel like I heard a little bit of conflicting information that I just wanted to clarify. Um, So leading up to that, first, someone said, go blue, and I'm not a sports person, um, but I do political advocacy, so it meant something completely different for me. But (laughs) what I do is in the space of public affairs and policy, and I also have an emphasis on the social determinants of health, particularly um, I have worked recently on strategic plans for uh, public health departments that look at Black maternal and child health, um, which I'm sure people here know the statistic. It's three and a half to four times that of white maternal and child health in terms of mortality. So people are dying because they don't know about resources. Um, They don't know how to combat racism that is interpersonal, that is systemic. And it's one thing to state the statistic. It's one thing to try to amplify that message. It's a completely different thing to get the right information in front of the people before they're part of that statistic. So just kind of going back to the first question that was asked, in terms of looking at limiting information, but then also trying to drown out misinformation. What would you say, I guess, is advice for people looking to shape policy that looks at getting that information out, lowering that statistic, closing the gap of maternal and child mortality, particularly as influenced by racism, while also trying to be safe with the volume Mm -hmm. of the information that we put out and also receive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, let me take a first swing here, and this is not my field, so this is going to be a more general answer. So the opposite of scaling up is, is scaling down. And the whole tech economy only cares about the highest scale, highest leverage solutions. Uh, and isn't concerned, and in fact, almost cannot intervene in uh, in low what I'll, I'll call low leverage opportunities, which is a terrible way uh, uh, to put it. Which leaves a bunch of white space in the universe uh, where people can do the much harder, much more laborious, and much more thankless work of filling in all the gaps. 
And that's, unfortunately, from my perspective, as an outsider to this work, that's what I think it's going to come down to. It's going to be a lot of um, boots on the ground yeah. kind of work because no one else is going to... The, the good thing is that it won't be all mucked up with scaled up bad information. The bad thing is that there's no scale to it. It's, it's not high leverage, and so it's hard to do, expensive. You've got to put people in the right places. And I'm sure there's all sorts of methods that you all know for doing it. Well, I'm actually going to pick up exactly where you um, where you put down there. I, I really first thank you for your work. So much of the challenge that we face, and this is an area in my day job uh, in Wayne County, work a lot on. So much of the challenge is that as the information ecosystem gets louder, more cacophonous, and is more untrusted, people are going to look to older institutions, brick-and-mortar institutions, actual people I can see face-to-face. And one of the challenges that we have is that in the sort of rush to, to move everything digitally, we've actually lost a lot of that. And I think building more of that infrastructure is absolutely critical. So one of the things that we're doing in, in Wayne County is trying to build brick-and-mortar birthing centers, right? Birthing is a, a truly physical thing, right? You can't do it digitally. And so we want a place, an institution where you can go and you can talk to the same person and talk and have a conversation. And I think that's going to be increasingly important as the internet becomes a less navigable place with fewer and fewer trusted voices that you you can engage with. The second thing I'll say is that I think public policy, especially at the federal level that addresses the structural inequities that are implicit in our system is fundamental. Now, a lot of you know in my, you know, if you ever listen to the podcast, I believe deeply in Medicare for All. I literally wrote a book about it. And part of the reason I do is because if you are a black parent in America, chances are your experience, just running the numbers, is as having been on the wrong side of a healthcare system that assents to a notion where you can be a second-class healthcare citizen. Medicaid is a really, really great safety net program. But the problem is, is if you're, you've had Medicaid in your life, you know that no provider is excited to see you. And it codes for all kinds of differences in the way that you're treated. And so if that's your experience and you walk into a clinic and the expectation because of the color of your skin, because of the nature of your insurance is about a certain circumstance in which you became pregnant about whether or not you have a stable partnership to bring up an infant, all of those things change the way in which you're interacted with. And those things end up pushing you into, right, the information space because you can't trust the brick and mortar institution in front of you. So I think there are really two big parts here. We need to demand federal policy where we stop paying lip service to equity while assenting to a system where people can be rendered second class because they're uninsurable, right? Because we think that you have to be employed to get real insurance. And second, we've got to build trustworthy public local institutions where people can come and build relationships of care and where they know whatever I'm hearing over there, I can trust the people here. And what I worry about is that over the last several decades, we've dismantled the progress toward either of those two things. We're not doing local services well enough Institutions have tremendous amount of flux because they've been fundamentally disinvested in. And then at the federal level, 
right? The effort to make sure that no matter who you are in this country, that you are an equal healthcare citizen, right? That your insurance should buy you access to the best care available, right? And that we are training our providers not to discriminate against people because of the color of their skin. Doing those two things together, I think is gonna be critical. And I worry that one of the things we've often done is we've been quick to offload, right? A lot of our responsibility onto these sort of digital services when in the long term, they're going to be more and more untrustworthy and particularly, particularly for folks who have been marginalized and discriminated against in our institutions for too long. And so we've got to hurry up and catch up because I worry that the internet of the future is going to be a more polluted, less trustworthy, uh, less engaging place and people are going to need somewhere to turn. If we don't build those in the real world, I, I really worried about where we're headed and I appreciate you being a part of the solution. Hello, so sorry. I am definitely one of the few people that did not raise my hand when you asked if people remembered life before the internet. <laughs> Don't um, be sorry about that. <laughs> but I guess as someone who is pretty green to public health as an MPH student, um, you spoke a lot about how there's finger wagging and public health personnel, whatever field you're in within public health, kind of face that pushback. Um, and this kind of relates to your episode about rising up public health. Since we've talked about all of the negatives of social media and AI, how can public health personnel step up and create content that's not just engaging and truthful, but that really grabs attention? So thank you for your question. That is a fantastic question. And I, and I think you, you, you're onto something really important. I think one of the things that uh, your, your generation of folks, and, you know, I, I like to claim that I'm a young person. I can't credibly do that anymore. But like, one of the things you understand is that you've come up in an information ecosystem where you understand that you don't just have to present facts, that you have to make content, right? And anybody who's been on social media knows that good content is good content. It has to grab your attention. It has to engage you. It has to hit those little buttons that you look for, right? When you're scrolling on TikTok or in my case on Reels, right? <laughs> and- and that means that we have to be a lot more compelling about explaining ourselves quickly in the medium that is going to increasingly be the medium of the future, right? And so I do think that we as a community need to take seriously the responsibility to learn how to communicate into the 21st century. And the problem is we haven't, right? A lot of public health schools have, you know, health communications programs that are really a lot more about interpreting right, esoteric figures and graphs than they are about how to make compelling content. And I think if you're going to graduate with an MPH or a PhD in public health, you really need to be able to talk about this stuff in ways that you can uh, push forward in one minute that captures everything. And one last note, and I just want to say this, this about our own internal curriculum. Part of the challenge with public health as a public health community is we've become, we've assented to becoming academicized. What do I mean by that? We, we publish for ourselves more than we care about communicating to people, right, who are not part of our group. So we use big language, right? And we're real, like there's like a fetish about big words for small ideas rather than small words for big ideas. And the problem with becoming overly academic is we've become navel-gazy, right? We're really interested in what other public health people think and half the time we're stunting for other public health people <laughs> rather than actually trying to communicate to the public. 
which by the way, is the first word of public health, right? So one of the things that we, we're gonna need to be able to do is understand that, that, that in an environment where you're more academic, comprehensiveness is more important than concision. In any other form of communication, being concise is more important than being comprehensive. Now, how many times have I engaged in a public discussion on public health where I had somebody else in public health be like, well, you missed this really important detail and you're misinforming the public. I'm like, nah, man, you don't understand. I can sit here and give a whole lecture for two and a half hours. You know how many people are gonna watch? So no, we have to be able to communicate in the system of communication that exists. Also, we need to be thinking about how we wanna tailor the system of communication so that it allows us to communicate what it is that we wanna do. And we have to be about doing both, right? So I really, really appreciate uh, your question. And you know, any of the, the, the school of public health administrators out there, right? TikTok for public health, would love to see that course somewhere. Huh? All right, I'll leave, I'll leave that there. Ian, do you have anything to say? Oh, I just want to add a couple of things as an outsider to this, to this community. Um, the first of which is that um, all of us live in the present. We live in the present, in the now. We don't live in the past. We have to, we have to play the, the hand that was dealt us. And sometimes it's a good hand and sometimes it isn't. I don't necessarily think that, uh, and I hope the, the, the picture we've tried to portray of the internet isn't that it's just a bad hand. It's a very, it's, it's a very troubled one, um, but it is, it is where we live now. There's just no denying that. And so we have to work within uh, those constraints. And yes, to, to change them, but not always to focus only on changing them, but to kind of face the real reality that's in front of us, which I think is germane uh, to, to what all of you do as I, as I understand it. And, and the second thing I want to say is that, I mean, maybe this is obvious, but I don't get this audience all the time. Um, we, we are counting on you, you know, to get this right. This is important. Uh, it's not just, oh, well, it would be nice if we had a TikTok, right? It's that uh, unless there's collective, this is the whole concept, right? Unless there's collective action, then individual action doesn't, doesn't really... Uh, matter so it's it's important um, it's important to get it right uh, we're getting it right just means like earnestly and deeply engaging with the the, the methods of, of of interchange that people actually use and how they actually use them r rather than treating them as externalities as something that you could kind of steer around or um, or avoid or ignore yeah thank you Ian so um I, I really, really appreciate you joining us today. Um, if we could have one more round of applause for Ian Bogost. Hey, for your first public health conference, man, you killed it. All right. Thank you. And, um, and that's all we got today. I really, really appreciate you all coming. Uh, the show is America Dissected. I hope that you will uh, subscribe, share with your friends, leave us a nice review. And if you really love us, uh, we do have merch at our merch store. Uh, you can check it out. And with that, thank you all so much. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producers are Tara Terpstra and Emma Frank. Vasilis Vitopoulos mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Takao Sazawa and Alex Yugira. Our executive producers are Leo Duran, Sarah Geismer, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. 
This show is for general information and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to provide specific healthcare or medical advice and should not be construed as providing healthcare or medical advice. Please consult your physician with any questions related to your own health. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Wayne County, Michigan or its Department of Health, Human and Veteran Services.